Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened. We are giving you all the evidence, the incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Can your heart stand the shocking facts? You're listening to episode 100 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're celebrating our first 100 episodes. And this is a special episode where we'll be giving you updates on the mysterious topics we've already discussed, as well as hearing your feedback on the podcast and what it means to you. And with me today, as always, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy, and congratulations on 100 episodes. Howdy, Dom, and congratulations to you two and all the listeners, many of whom have been with us since the beginning. Yeah, so it's been nearly two years since we started Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, and in that time, we've brought you countless mysteries covering science, the paranormal, technology, mysterious deaths, cryptids, true crime, religion, historical mysteries, and many more. But uh, new developments keep happening on these topics that we've already covered, and Jimmy obviously never stops researching. So, Jimmy, what's emerged about these mysteries since we first broadcast them? What new resources are available for you? And what has Mysterious World meant to you? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. This is Dave from Palm Coast, Florida. Somewhere between the beloved Coast to Coast with Art Bell show and a straight hard science a religious and news show is Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, and it's wonderful. All right, our very first update today goes all the way back to episode number one, Ghosts. I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. I do. Uh, Jimmy, what updates do we need to give people about our very first episode, which was on Ghosts? There are two. First, one of the questions we considered was whether damned souls, those that are in hell, can appear and manifest themselves to the living. Second, we looked at the question of whether the appearance of the dead prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 28 might be a genuine case where a deceased spirit was called back from the dead by a medium or whether it was a demon pretending to be Samuel. And we'll have updates on both of those. Regarding the appearance of damned souls, I initially expressed skepticism 
at the time about whether that's possible. However, since we first started nearly two years ago, I've done further research and I've found a basis for this happening in the history of Catholic thought. There have been Catholics, respectable theologians, who have entertained seriously the idea of a damned soul manifesting itself to the living. In the 1200s, St. Thomas Aquinas considered this question. He considered whether souls in general of the departed, including those in heaven, those in hell, and those in purgatory, can appear to the living. And in the supplement to the third part of his Summa Theologiae, question 69, article 3, he wrote, According to the disposition of divine providence, separated souls sometimes come forth from their abode and appear to men, as Augustine relates of the martyr Felix, who appeared visibly to the people of Nola when they were besieged by the barbarians. It is also credible that this may occur sometimes to the damned, and that for man's instruction and intimidation they be permitted to appear to the living, or again, in order to seek our suffrages, as to those who are detained in purgatory, as evidenced by many instances related in the fourth book of the Dialogues. There is, however, this difference between the saints and the damned that the saints can appear when they will to the living, but not the damned who are unable to do so unless they be sometimes permitted. It's interesting that Aquinas identifies two purposes for which a damned person might appear to the living, for their instruction and intimidation. In other words, to scare them back onto the straight and narrow, kind of like what Jacob Marley does to Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. What Aquinas doesn't go into is whether the damned would be performing these tasks willingly or in spite of themselves, but he does have an intelligible reason why they would be allowed to appear. Aquinas was not the only figure who held that it was possible for damned souls to appear to the living. Now, he wrote in the 1200s, but 500 years later, in the 1700s, Cardinal Lorenzo Lambertini, the future Pope Benedict XIV, published a work on the canonization of saints that was so influential, it is still considered a standard work on that subject today. Its title was Doctrina de Servorum de Beatificatione et Beatorum Canonizatione, or The Teaching on the Beatification of Servants of God and the Canonization of Blesseds, but parts of it have been published in English under the title Heroic Virtue. In Volume 3 of Heroic Virtue, Benedict XIV refers to occasions on which the souls of the dead, although of the damned, when, by the permission of God, they appear to the living, Assume that form by which they are known. So both St. Thomas Aquinas and Pope Benedict XIV, among other thinkers, held that it is possible for the souls of the damned to appear to the living. So this is an established idea in the history of theology. Regarding Samuel's ghost, I pointed out that there's nothing in the text that suggests Samuel was a demon. That's something people try to infer because they don't like the idea of mediumship working. In the text, and also because it's forbidden, the text in 1 Samuel 28, though, treats it straightforwardly as the soul of the prophet Samuel, and you have to speculatively read into the text to get the idea it was a demon. Well, since we recorded, I ran across a passage in the book of Sirach. This is from chapter 46, verses 19 and 20, where the author states, When Samuel neared the end of life, he testified before the Lord and his anointed prince, no bribe or secret gift have I taken from anyone, and no one could accuse him. Even after death his guidance was sought, he made known to the king his fate. From the grave he spoke in prophecy to put an end to wickedness. So after his death, 
Samuel told King Saul his fate and, quote, from the grave he spoke in prophecy, close quote. The inspired author Sirach thus tells us it was Samuel's ghost that appeared, not a demon. Now, this won't settle the matter for our Protestant friends who don't consider Sirach to be an inspired book, but even for them, it's an indication of how the ancient audience, how ancient Hebrews understood this passage. I should point out that we'll be returning to this passage in a future episode when we discuss mediums and communication with the dead. Because Samuel's ghost was contacted through a medium, it's evidence from the faith perspective that at least on some occasions, mediums really can make contact with the dead. But there's also the reason perspective. And recently, I've been doing some research on studies of mediumship that parapsychologists have been conducting, and some of them have been getting better than random chance information through mediums in multiple blind experiments where neither the medium nor the sitter for a reading knew or were ever in contact with each other. So there's some scientific evidence for mediumship working at least some of the time, even though it's forbidden to Christians. But that's our update for episode one. There is a history for the idea of the damned occasionally appearing to the living, and it was Samuel's ghost. My name is Morgan Erickson. I am calling on behalf of our whole family, my husband, John, and our kids, Manny and Ezra. We are new Catholics. My husband discovered SQPN and Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World last spring, and we instantly loved it. Exploring the strange and mysterious within the context of faith and reason is fun and brings back nostalgic memories of watching documentaries on Bigfoot with my dad growing up. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World brings our family together every Friday as we all look forward to going for a drive and listening to our favorite podcast. Thank you so much. All right, Jimmy, let's go to our next update. This comes all the way back to episode number three on Bigfoot. What do we have new on Bigfoot? In our original episode, I said that I would love for Bigfoot to be real, but I thought it unlikely that there could be a biped that large in North America that has both remained undiscovered and has managed to keep up a sufficiently large breeding population. We also discussed claims that the famous Patterson-Gimlin film was hoaxed. That's the famous film that everybody's seen with Bigfoot walking into the woods. After the episode, uh, we were contacted by a number of people who are firm believers in Bigfoot and who even claim to have had encounters with the creatures. Also, another podcast, Astonishing Legends, did a multi-part deep dive into the Patterson-Gimlin film, and they sought to debunk the hoax claim, arguing that the film may well be genuine. We'll take another look at Bigfoot and the Patterson-Gimlin film in a future episode, but for now, we'll have links to the Astonishing Legends series so you can listen to their arguments for yourself. Before you start, though, be aware it's in seven parts, and they did a total of 15 hours and 15 minutes on the Patterson-Gimlin film, so it's a Marianas Trench-level deep dive, and yes, I have listened to the whole thing. That is some serious Bigfoot listening. So, Jimmy, I have a little bit of Bigfoot news, not uh, quite as big, but the, here in just this morning, as we're recording this, uh, I was reading the newspaper and it says here in Brimfield, Massachusetts, uh, which is near to where I live, the police are on the hunt for Bigfoot. He uh, broke into a 7-Eleven and grabbed beer. 
<laughs> well, I think the social isolation is really getting to Bigfoot. No, what what actually has happened is uh, this family out in that area have a carved Bigfoot statue that stands in front of their home, and some uh, near dwells came by and stole it in the dead of night. Uh, so I think maybe socialization is getting to them. <laughs> frankly, okay. Hi, this is Will from Phoenix. I absolutely love the podcast. I love how Jimmy goes through everything so logically, both from the faith and reason perspective. It reminds me a lot of one of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And I think that's what Jimmy and Dom uh, do every single episode. They entertain all sorts of different things, uh, but in the end it all comes crashing back to the ground, reason, uh, and not letting anything uh, stray get away. So, great show. Love it. Uh, keep it up. All right, Jimmy. So uh, let's move on to another very early and very important episode. It was, it was almost foundational. This one on Area 51. What's the news on Area 51? Area 51 is a remote military and government testing facility in the Nevada desert. It's been used to develop advanced airplanes for the Air Force and the CIA, as well as to reverse engineer Russian aircraft. It's also rumored to be where the government is reverse engineering UFOs. The government has made it progressively harder to get good images of Area 51, but recently a private pilot named Gabriel Zeifman got a bunch of pictures of Area 51 and surrounding areas in the Nevada test and training range, and it made a big splash among both those who follow UFOs and those who follow secret military projects. So we'll have links to a couple of stories along with the pictures of Area 51 and the other top secret areas so you can see them for yourself. Jimmy and Dom, this is Kelly from Knoxville, Tennessee. Happy 100th episode. When this podcast was announced, I was very excited and very intrigued, but I never thought it would become my favorite podcast, but it did very quickly. Ever since I was a kid, I always loved mysterious topics. I used to love watching reruns of Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of and similar shows and other documentaries about weird topics. For this podcast, even topics that I never thought I would be interested in, like JFK's Dr. Feelgood, both you and Dom made very compelling. But I have to say my favorite episodes are the ancient mysteries from Egypt and Rome, with the Tutankhamun murder plot being my absolute favorite. I have listened to it probably three or four times. <laughs> Jimmy is an excellent storyteller, and Dom is a great host, and I look forward to Fridays every week. As a convert to Catholicism, I love how you both employ faith and reason perspectives to all these mysteries, and I love how you're both fair to all sides of the argument and you don't mock any arguments that you may disagree with. I actually shared this podcast with my dad, who I actually got my love of the strange and mysterious from, and he is now a big fan of the show. I can't believe it has been 100 episodes and I am looking forward to the next set of mysteries you have for us. I am proud to be an SQPN patron. God bless. And then let's move on to our next update. This is on the very early episode, the Pyramids of Egypt, episode number six. What's new with the pyramids, Jimmy? We have several things to update people about concerning the Giza Plateau and the pyramids there. The pyramid is opening. Which one? The one with the ever-widening hole in it. First, occultists like H. Spencer Lewis and Edgar Cayce have claimed for a long time that there are hidden chambers beneath the Sphinx and that these contain things like lost records from Atlantis. 
While that's very unlikely, it has been discovered that there are chambers, some of which may be natural caves, under the Sphinx. In our updates, we'll have a link to a story about this, which contains a picture of a British archaeologist showing us the entrance to one of the underground chambers, which is located at the back of the Sphinx near its tail. There's also another up front under the paws. Our second update is one you may remember a number of years ago, a team of archaeologists used a robot to go up what appears to be an air shaft rising from the so-called Queen's Chamber in the Great Pyramid of Khufu. This chamber probably didn't have anything to do with a queen, but that's what it's called because it's smaller than another chamber, which is known as the King's Chamber. The purpose of the apparent air shaft is mysterious because it doesn't seem to go all the way to the surface. It was deliberately sealed with a stone with a couple of copper pins in it. It's like a little stone doorway. So it doesn't look like it was meant to practically provide air, at least long term. It may have had a ritual function that we don't understand. The original robot team was given permission to drill a hole through the stone seal, but they couldn't really see anything on the other side. Now, a new team has sent up a robot and put a special flexible camera through the hole, letting them see what's inside it. They found that it's a small cubicle chamber, about 8 inches by 8 inches by 8 inches. They also saw that there are metal structures on the back side of the barrier, so they could turn the camera around and look at the back of the stone barrier. And these metal fixtures are perhaps like continuations of the copper pins from the front side. And they also found something else. But to appreciate it, we need to hear from Dr. Daniel Jackson. Every other major architectural structure at the time was covered with detailed hieroglyphics. When is the academic community going to accept the fact the pharaohs of the fourth dynasty did not build the great pyramids? Look, look. Inside the pyramid, the most incredible structure ever erected, there are no writings whatsoever. Dr. And Jackson, you've left out the fact that Colonel Weiss yes. discovered Quarryman's inscriptions right. of Khufu's name within the pyramid. Well, his discovery was a fraud. Well, I hope you can prove it. What Dr. Jackson of the famous Stargate SG-1 team is referring to are some marks that the British Egyptologist Major General Howard Weiss found. They had been left by a construction gang in the relieving chambers that take architectural pressure off the king's chamber, and they were made with red paint. The markings identified the gang as the Companions of Khufu, thus dating the pyramid to the reign of the fourth dynasty pharaoh Khufu, or Cheops, to use his Greek name. That's why this is also called the Great Pyramid of Cheops. Dr. Jackson dismissed these marks as a fraud, but since he's a fictional character, that doesn't carry a lot of weight with modern Egyptologists. However, some real-world people have claimed that the marks might have been forged, though that's not believed by mainstream Egyptologists, and we'll talk more about that in a few moments. What's significant about the new robot team is that in the small cubicle chamber at the end of the air shaft, they also found markings. And since nobody can get up in the air shaft to the little tiny chamber, and since they videoed the discovery of these particular markings, they're genuine. They really do date from the time of the pyramid. Though what they mean is still being discussed, they're kind of hard to read. They do appear to have been left by workmen, 
and that provides indirect evidence supporting the authenticity of the markings discovered by Howard Weiss. And the new markings that the robot team found are in red, just like the ones that Howard Weiss found. And recent examinations of the marks that Weiss found show that they continue between blocks of stone. So it's not like they're just written on a wall. They like go off the wall into the cracks between the stones. So you couldn't, uh, there's no way Vice could have done that. And that shows that actually they're not a modern forgery, but really do date to the time that the blocks were being put in place. In fact, key advocates of the idea that Khufu didn't build the pyramid and other fringe Egyptology theorists have since reversed themselves after having had a chance to look at the vice markings up close. This includes people like Graham Hancock, John Anthony West, and Robert Baval. So even these guys have come around on the vice markings. Uh, and we'll have a link to a video that you can watch on that. This February, the new robot team posted a documentary about their discovery on YouTube, along with all the raw footage of their expedition up the shaft uh, that you can also watch. So we'll have links to both of those, both the documentary and the hours of boring raw footage <laughs> that got edited down to make the much more interesting documentary. Nice. Third, in our original episode, we mentioned that a big new chamber had been discovered in the Great Pyramid using muon detection by a group known as the Scan Pyramids team. They also found a smaller hidden chamber, apparently a corridor that's at least 15 feet long, near the entrance to the pyramid. That's the historic entrance, not the modern one. The big chamber they found is over 100 feet long and sits above the Grand Gallery, which is a big, long, sloping chamber that goes up to the King's Chamber. We're not sure what the function of the Grand Gallery was, but it's been proposed that it was an internal structure that was used in the construction of the pyramid to haul big blocks up the Grand Gallery, up this ramp-like thing using kind of a winch system, and that's why it's so large. The newly discovered chamber is known as the Big Void, and we don't know what it was for yet. It's been suggested that it might have been used in the construction of the pyramid since it's located kind of above the Grand Gallery. It might be part of the same construction system. However, it's also been suggested that it might be a burial chamber, in which case it might still contain Hufu's mummy and other artifacts, like, you know, the treasures that were discovered in King Tutankhamun's tomb. Since it doesn't appear to have been opened in antiquity, it would presumably still be pristine. And if it had been opened in antiquity, we would have found, you know, how they got in there, because they would have had to dis dismantle or smash stones, and we haven't found that. In any event, I hope the Egyptian authorities will allow exploration of it. Uh, before that, though, we need to do more scanning, and the Scan Pyramids team has been working on that and hopes to issue a report later this year that further pins down the shape and location of the Big Void. We'll have a link to a new video on the current state of their work. On the other hand, it's also been proposed that Hufu's burial chamber is actually below the pyramid. And there's less evidence for hidden chambers down there, but there is some. And we'll have links to some mini documentaries exploring that subject. My name is Connor. I'm a college student, and I enjoy listening to Mysterious World, especially the Resurrection episode. It helped me clear up a lot of doubts uh, about my faith. Uh, thank you, guys. 
My name is Paul S. And I also uh, love the show. And I've actually used the episode on the Knights Templar in discussion to debunk a lot of the conspiracy theories about the Knights Templar and saying that they're actually an honorable organization. And I also play Dungeons and Dragons and I've um, I used the show for ideas. And I love the show for really inspiring me to think of things in different ways. All right, Jimmy, in episode 22, we talked about Bob Lazar. Uh, let's uh, hear some updates on him. For people who may not remember, Bob Lazar is the guy who brought the government research facility Area 51 to the public's attention back in the 1980s. He also claimed to have been hired to work there reverse engineering UFOs. Well, there's several, uh, actually nine uh, flying saucers, flying discs, uh, that are out there of extraterrestrial origin, and uh, they're basically being dismantled. Uh, some are, well, in various stages of, of completion, built from other parts, and they're being test-flown and uh, uh, basically just analyzed. In our episode, I expressed skepticism about multiple aspects of his story, though I acknowledged that it's possible he had at least once worked at Area 51, whether he was reverse engineering UFOs or doing something else. We also talked about Jeremy Corbell's documentary about Lazar, which depicted an FBI raid on his current business that sells scientific supplies. In the documentary, Lazar suggested that the FBI was searching for Element 115, which he says was used by the UFOs. Because of the way the documentary presented the raid, there was a question in my mind about whether it actually happened. So I reached out and contacted the FBI, and they said that it did. I even corresponded with one of the agents who was there. And though the raid wasn't about Element 115, they said they wouldn't give me a lot of details about it. Since that time, more details have emerged, and it turns out that the raid was to find out if a particular customer of Lazar's had bought thallium from him. Thallium, or element 81, is highly toxic and is used in rat poison. It's also used by humans who want to murder other humans. And the FBI was investigating the possibility that one of Lazar's customers had poisoned his wife with thallium. Lazar cooperated with the investigation, and he wasn't in any trouble, but he still claims that the stated purpose of the raid was just a cover and they were really looking for Element 115. We'll have a link to an article discussing what eventually emerged about the raid. Also, since our original episode, Lazar has released an autobiography. So if you want to read a detailed presentation of his story about working at Area 51 and reverse engineering UFOs and evaluate it for yourself, you can check it out. My name's Tristram. I really enjoy the show. I listen to it later in the evening as I'm trying to get to sleep, and it's very soothing. It's kind of like hearing a family member tell me a story. Thanks so much for everyone's hard work, and I look forward to being a patron in the present and near future. So, Jimmy, in episode 23, we talked about astrology. Uh, what's new in astrology? In our original episode, I pointed out that there are are no known scientific bases for the way astrology is classically thought to work, that the planets don't have any known influence, uh, you know, beyond like gravity, which is minuscule. So the basis of classical astronomy, astrology is very problematic. After our episode, 
Several readers pointed out that even though the classical understanding of astrology doesn't work, there is actually a basis for something like astrology, even though it works completely differently. It turns out that scientific studies have shown that when you are born in the year really can have an impact on factors like your personality, the mental health problems you may face, and various life outcomes. But it isn't the planets or stars that do this to you. It's one specific star, our sun. Except in equatorial latitudes, the length of the day varies considerably because of the tilt of the Earth's axis. And that means that when you were born, when you were in the womb, actually, your mother would have gotten more sunlight in the summer months and less in the winter months. Since our skin uses sunlight to make vitamin D, that means you would have had more vitamin D available to you in the womb at certain times of the year compared to others. And vitamin D has an impact on the development of unborn children. So babies born in some months had more vitamin D affecting their development in the womb than other babies. And science has discovered that this has an effect on later life outcomes. It can affect not only your personality, but also your height, weight, and when you hit puberty. Here's the abstract of a UK study on season of birth, birth weight, pubertal timing, adult body size, and educational attainment. Season of birth, a marker of in utero vitamin D exposure, has been associated with a wide range of health outcomes. Using a data set of approximately 450,000 participants from the UK Biobank study, we aimed to assess the impact of this seasonality on birth weight age at menarche, that is, at the beginning of puberty for girls, adult height, and body mass index. Birth weight, age of menarche, and height, but not BMI, were highly significantly associated with season of birth. Individuals born in summer, June, July, August, had higher mean birth weight, later pubertal development, and taller adult height compared to those born in all other seasons. Concordantly, those born in winter, December, January, February, showed directionally opposite differences in these outcomes. A secondary comparison of the extreme differences between months revealed higher odds ratios, 95% confidence intervals, for low birth weight in February versus September, for early puberty in September versus July, and for short stature in December versus June. The above associations were also seen with total hours of sunshine during the second trimester, but not during the first three months after birth. Additional associations were observed with educational attainment. Individuals born in autumn versus summer were more likely to continue in education post-age 16 years or attain a degree-level qualification. However, unlike other outcomes, an abrupt difference was seen between those born in August versus September, which flanked the start of the school year. Our findings provide support for the fetal programming hypothesis, refining and extending the impact that season of birth has on childhood growth and development. Whilst other mechanisms may contribute to these associations, these findings are consistent with a possible role of in utero vitamin D exposure. And here's the abstract of another study, which this time focused on psychiatric outcomes in England. There is general consensus that season of birth influences the risk of developing psychiatric conditions later in life. We aimed to investigate whether the risk of schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, and recurrent depressive disorder is influenced by month of birth in England to a similar extent as other countries using the largest cohort of English patients collected to date. 
when cases were compared to the general English population, all diseases showed a seasonal distribution of births. This data has implications for future strategies of disease prevention. So they found that things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression were also affected by birth month. Just for fun, let's convert the birth months into star signs. Uh, every year, the sun's apparent motion takes it around the ecliptic, the flat plane of the solar system, and it appears against different constellations that we call the zodiac. In astrology, your star sign is the constellation of the zodiac that the sun appeared in when you were born, at least theoretically. That's not always true. The star signs, in turn, correspond kind of sort of to the month you were born in. For example, if you were born today, when this episode is being released, Friday, May 22nd, you'd be a Gemini because Gemini runs every year from May 21st. So Gemini just started through June 20th. So based on these English studies, if you were in the womb in the northern hemisphere, when it comes to physical factors, Geminis, Cancers, and Leos will enter puberty later but end up a bit taller than most. Conversely, Capricorns, Aquarii, and Pisces will enter puberty earlier but end up a bit shorter than most. When it comes to education, Virgos, Libras, and Scorpios tend to get more education and more college-level degrees than Geminis, Cancers, and Leos, though this is also affected by the start of the school year. When it comes to psychological conditions, Scorpios, Sagittariuses, and especially Capricorns were the most likely to develop schizophrenia, while Aries, Cancers, Leos, and Libras were the least likely. By contrast, Capricorns, Aries, and Cancers were the most likely to develop bipolar disorder, while Geminis, Leos, and Virgos were the least likely. And finally, Capricorns, Aries, and Tauruses, and Geminis, were the most likely to have later depressions, while Cancers, Leos, and Virgos, and especially Scorpios, were the least likely. All of these star sign correlations should be flipped for people living in the Southern Hemisphere who have winter when we're having summer and vice versa, so the Catholics of Oz should compensate for that. Bear in mind also that these are only slight deviations up and down from the overall population statistical averages. So other factors like genetics and environment are much more significant. But birth month and thus star sign does have at least a little bit of influence on these rates. And we'll have links to both of those studies. And I really want to thank the listeners who put me onto those studies. Uh, it really shows how intelligent and helpful the Mysterious World listening community is. My name is Justin Schwartzbeck. I hail from Central Texas. I had already been listening to Jimmy Aiken through EWTN and Catholic Answers for some years now, including when I was beginning my spiritual journey to Catholicism back in 2009. So I was already familiar with Jimmy. In fact, I would say Jimmy Aiken and Trent Horn are probably my favorite apologists. I've always admired Jimmy's depth of knowledge and his gracious demeanor. His work at Catholic Answers played a significant role in my conversion to the Catholic faith. He has answered my questions before on Catholic Answers Live and has also recently answered my mysterious feedback on the Frank Olson episode, which I found kind of exciting. So I always thought of Jimmy Aiken as cool, but I never realized just how cool he was until I discovered this podcast. I was never really into UFOs, cryptids, or conspiracy theories, but now I definitely am intrigued by these topics. The historical mysteries are particularly fascinating to me as well. I think I became a patron after listening to the Diatlov Pass episode. Keep up the good work, guys. 
Jimmy, of course, one of our most popular episodes was on the mystery of Dyatlov Pass in episode 24. What's new with Dyatlov Pass? For people who may not remember, the Dyatlov Pass incident occurred in February of 1959 when a group of Russian hikers died under mysterious circumstances in the Ural Mountains. In the middle of the night, they abruptly cut their way out of their tent and all fled into the wilderness, only partially dressed and not wearing shoes, despite the fact that there was snow all over the ground and the danger of frostbite was really high. None of them survived, and some had bizarre physical injuries. The report at the time concluded that they had been killed by, quote, a compelling natural force, whatever that means. And since that time, all kinds of theories have been proposed about what happened to them, but the theories each have problems. In February of 2019, Russian authorities announced that they were reopening the investigation into what happened at Dyatlov Pass. The investigation is supposed to apply modern forensic techniques, but they were confining themselves to look only at certain more mundane theories. According to CNN, Some 75 theories have been put forward, according to the prosecutor's office, including an alien abduction. Another suggests they were killed by members of the Mansi people, for whom the mountains were spiritually symbolic. Still others claim the scene was staged in order to cover up details of a secret weapons testing program. However, the new inquiries will only investigate three theories considered the, quote, most likely ones. Uh, All of them are somehow connected with natural phenomena, said Alexander Kurinoy, the official representative of Russia's prosecutor general. Crime is out of the question, he said, adding, there is not a single proof, even an indirect one, to favor this criminal version. It was either an avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. So they're only looking at the idea that what drove them out of the tent was either an avalanche, a special type of avalanche known as a snow slab avalanche, and a blizzard, which the report refers to as a hurricane. Thus far, the authorities have not announced the result of their new investigation, but we'll have a link to the CNN story. Also, we'll have a link to an immersive web experience created by Ruptly TV. It's a kind of guided click-through documentary that incorporates new footage from 2019 and the current investigation. My name is Matt, and I just wanted to say how much I appreciate uh, Jimmy Egan's Mysterious World, especially the episode on the mystery of weight loss. Listening to that and looking at some of the recommended resources in the notes caused my wife and I to completely change the way that we eat, the way that we see food and nutrition, and uh, without any real exercise or uh, any other regimen just from changing what we eat, I lost 70 pounds in about six months, and my wife lost about 20 or 30 pounds in about half that time. We're so grateful for you and all of the work that you do. So grateful for this podcast. We just became patrons today. Keep doing what you're doing and know that we're praying for you and so appreciative of it. Jimmy, what's new with uh, the topic of Jimmy Hoffa that we discussed in episode 26? Jimmy Hoffa was an American trade union leader with mob ties who mysteriously disappeared in 1975. In our episode, we covered the book, I Heard You Paint Houses, in which a mob hitman and friend of Jimmy Hoffa named Frank Sheeran claimed responsibility for performing the hit. He said he hated doing it because he was a friend of Hoffa, but he was made an offer he couldn't refuse, meaning that he would be killed if he didn't do the hit. The book was published in 2004, the year after Sheeran's death, so he wasn't in legal jeopardy for what amounted to a deathbed confession. Also, before the end of his life, Sheeran returned to his Catholic faith and went to confession, which gave him a great deal of comfort. 
At the time of our episode, we reported that Martin Scorsese was making a film based on I Heard You Paint Houses, which starred Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran and Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa. The film was called The Irishman, and it's now out on Netflix, where you can watch it. It's been received very favorably as a work of art with a 96% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94 out of 100 rating on Metacritic. It's also like three and a half hours long or something, so budget some time, maybe watch it in two parts. Despite the fact that it's uh, been hailed as a really great film, it's still a film, not a court case. And so even though Sheeran was one of the FBI's suspects in the case, not everybody's been convinced by his deathbed confession. And we'll also have a link to a video about other theories about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. My name is Basil. I'm French. I live in China. And I just wanted to drop you a a, a rapid message to tell you how important uh, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World podcast has been to me. I started from episode one. I haven't missed any. And it's pretty much the best moment of my week when on Saturday morning I wake up, I download the podcast, and I just go walk my dog. And that's how I start my weekend. It's frankly awesome. Living in China, you can feel pretty isolated uh, in terms of Christian faith and who you can share and learn from. Even though, thank God, the church and the gospel is growing very fast here. But thanks to Catholic Answers Live and SQPA, and honestly, I've, I've not only developed, but also uh, grown my faith over the last year. Not only do I listen to every episode, but I also share it. Oh, yeah, one last thing before I go. Keep making episodes about, uh, about French and uh, French mysteries and French people. Because honestly, every time I hear you guys pronouncing French names, it cracks me up. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Jimmy, what's new with the episode we did on near-death experiences in uh, episode 27? In this episode, we talked about the kind of near-death experiences where people clinically die and then report what they saw after the doctors are able to revive them. But that's not the only kind of near-death experience there is. There are other kinds, including a whole range of deathbed phenomena that we'll be talking about in future episodes. One kind of deathbed phenomena is a near-death experience where even though the person's heart doesn't stop, he's still close enough to death that he begins to have the same kind of experiences as if he's mentally crossing over to the other side only to be sent back. Recently, I was having a conversation with one of my aunts in Texas, and it turned out that there's a history of near-death experiences in my own family. So I interviewed her about them, and we'll be presenting some clips from that interview. Before we get to the family cases, though, I wanted to start with an NDE of a man that she met when she was working as a stewardess. And by the way, notice the gentle and charitable way my aunt describes the kind of life the man was leading. I try to model those same gentle and charitable attitudes when dealing with delicate situations like that. So I guess it kind of runs in families, especially in the South. You were a stewardess a number of years ago for Acme Airlines. Right. And I understood that you met a gentleman on a plane who had had a near-death experience, and he told you some about it. What did he have to say? It was so profound for him. The upshot was that the reason we are here on Earth is to help each other. Uh-huh. And he had not been he had not been living that kind of life before. Now he seemed like a perfectly fine, ordinary gentleman, but apparently he had been leading the more kind of me kind of attitude that so many of us do live. And he said he 
you know, completely changed the way he looked at the way we should be dealing with each other after having that experience. What I find interesting about the gentleman's experience itself is how it prompted him to lead a different kind of life. It doesn't appear that he had an experience of hell or anything like that, but it does indicate that NDEs aren't simply I'm okay, you're okay experiences that leave people comfortable with the kind of life they were previous leading. They can prompt people to repent. The same is true of a couple of experiences that one of my distant cousins had. My aunt learned about these when she attended the funeral of her own mother, my grandmother. Yes, he he was in a coma because of some illness that he had for about two months. And during that period of time, he actually had the crossover experience twice. My brother and I had visited him in the hospital, even though we couldn't actually uh, speak to him because he was in a coma. We did go in and pray for him. But when... uh, mother died he brought his uh, mother his mother who's one of my cousins to the funeral and he walked in to me i was standing up by mother's casket and his arms were wide open and this huge grin on his face and mind you now he barely knew me and i barely knew him because we're not the same age group uh, he's, he's a lot younger than i am but anyway he said i want you to know that she is in a wonderful place, and I know it because I have been there twice. And I said, oh, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you so much. And he said that both times that he went, it was just beautiful. It was wonderful, and he wanted to stay. There were people there, and uh, one of them, who was a relative of his, told him that both times, same, same relative, told him that he had to come back. And he also told me this, that after, you know, he he had not been living the kind of life that he should have been living. He was living life the way he wanted to live it. And, uh, but after that experience, he changed a lot of, of the way that he was living then. He made things right with various people and, and is living a very... Um, different kind of life now. Here again, we have someone who was not living the kind of life he should, but realized he needed to make things right after the experience. The NDE that led to my aunt and my having the conversation was one that occurred with her husband, my uncle. He's in his 80s, and back in January, he had a severe case of viral pneumonia coupled with heart failure. The hospital was so full that before they could get him a room, he had to spend a couple of nights in the emergency room. Of course, I, like others in the family, were praying for him, and it was thought that this really might be his time. But he recovered, and even though he didn't have his heart stop, he was close enough to death that he had an NDE, which my aunt told me about. The next morning, he woke up and he said, oh, I have just been to some the most terrific places. It's just was wonderful. And I said, hey, sounds like you had a great dream. And he said, no, it wasn't a dream. I was really there. So this was a qualitatively different experience than a dream. Exactly. It, it was It was real. He's not the kind of person that has ever been interested in near-death experiences. He said, I was with angels. And he said, I had one that was my escort showing me the beautiful things 
on the other side. And he said, I'll tell you this, you don't ever have to be afraid of dying. It's all part of God's plan, and it is beautiful. And he said, I can tell you this, he said, angels are always with us here. He said, in fact, they're here right now. I was happy that he had that experience because then I knew that he never did. He would never fear death. And I didn't then ever have to feel anxiety for him experiencing that. Exactly. Exactly. Did he say anything else after the experience? I understand he referred to it a number of times, even if he didn't go into a lot of detail. Right. He would be uh, sitting there in his chair. He spent a lot of time sitting in his chair rather than in bed, because that was better for him to be sitting up if he could. And when he was, uh, he'd be sitting there and his eyes would be closed, but not asleep. And he'd just be sitting there and he would all of a sudden be saying, it is so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And uh, then, you know, time went on and, and like hours, maybe the next day, he said, I wish I could remember just what it was like because it had started to fade for him mm-hmm. by that time. But during the time afterward, he, it was just so profound, so beautiful that he loved being a part of that. And he doesn't normally have significant memory problems. It seems like this memory may have been fading more than a normal one would for him. Like maybe it was a temporary glimpse. Right. That's my impression, Jimmy. Yeah, that's my impression. It also turned out that there were even more NDEs in my family. My aunt's grandmother, that's my great-grandmother, was named Marianne Beard. And she was known in the family as Mom Beard. And yes, since my great-grandparents were beards, I am one-quarter beard. (laughs) She lived to be almost 100, and my aunt told me about an NDE that she had. I will tell you that my grandmother, your great-grandmother, she had had a a near-death experience. Now, what it consisted of, I do not know what she saw or who talked to her. I know nothing about that. All I know is that she was told that she had to come back and that she had about five more years to live. And that's exactly what happened. And she died in her 90s. Yep. So that's a significant prediction to hear you've got five years left and already be that old. Yeah, that's right. Because you could naturally die at any time. But then if it actually ends up being about the amount of time you were told, that's significant confirmation. Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? She would often say during that period of time, because she was dependent on other people by that time, she couldn't live alone. She said that she couldn't understand why she still had to be here. Uh Uh-huh. Well, sometimes there are purposes for us we're not aware of. Exactly. I've I've often thought that sometimes, even if it's not for our own good, it might be for somebody else's good that we have to be here. We never know what's in God's plan for us or for somebody else that we're playing a part of. One of the things that my aunt and I discussed was the fact that this happened so long ago that accounts of NDEs weren't yet out in the popular press. Raymond Moody's famous book, Life After Life, you know, either hadn't come out or was only just coming out. And my great-grandmother wouldn't have read about NDEs. However, there was still one further NDE that my aunt was aware of. It occurred to her own great-grandmother, so my great-to-the-second grandmother, 
who was Mom Beard's mother. Now, she did know that when her mother died, her mother, as she was dying, called out the name of her first husband. Her father, my grandmother's father, had died when she was young, and then her mother married again. But when she died, this is my great-grandmother, she called out the name of her first husband. It was like he, she was seeing him mm-hmm. when she died. So it wasn't. It didn't seem to be just a memory. It seemed like she was having an experience of him. Yes, yes. Like she was speaking to him. So there's been quite a history of NDEs in my own family. My name's Ryan. I've been with you guys since the beginning. I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and Jimmy's work on Catholic Answers really helped me understand my faith better. The thing that I love most about the mysterious world is how you guys just seamlessly apply the uh, the moral teachings and uh, just logic and reason in general to all of these bizarre concepts like evangelizing aliens and that kind of thing. How fair and serious you take it. You guys have been very fair with the uh, Joseph Smith episode and, and even some things like the Flat Earthers and whatnot. I've really been enlightened. Some of my favorite episodes have been the the Jetlaw Pass, the one about the Knights Templar, the evangelizing aliens. Anyways, just want to thank you guys for, for what you've done and uh, you know please please keep on trucking and you know, here's to 100 more episodes. So, Jimmy, on this next one, I have to say that I've, saw, I've mentioned that a couple of these episodes have been very popular. But by far, I think the the most listened to episode that we've done so far, it's episode 36 on Skinwalker Ranch. That one has really captured the attention of folks. What's new at Skinwalker Ranch? So Skinwalker Ranch is a location in Utah where all manner of bizarre phenomena have been reported. One of the reasons it's unusual is that the American businessman Bob Bigelow had a team of scientists investigate the site. In our episode, we talked about the book Hunt for the Skinwalker by the lead scientist, Colm Kelleher, as well as the Nevada journalist George Knapp, and they discussed the investigations of the site in the book. We also talked about a documentary by the same Jeremy Corbell, the same guy who did the documentary on Bob Lazar. One of the things we didn't really talk about in the episode was the fact that between 2009 and 2011, the Defense Intelligence Agency's Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, or OSAP, did research at the ranch. OSAP is one of the programs related to the Navy's ATIP UFO project that we've talked about in several episodes. So you had those folks doing research at the ranch, in part because a lot of UFOs have been reported there. Something we did talk about was the fact that Skinwalker Ranch has a new owner, but at the time of the Jeremy Corbell documentary, he was keeping his identity a secret. Well, he's not doing that anymore, and we now know that Utah businessman Brandon Fugal is the new owner. We'll have a link to an article profiling him and the new research he's having done at the ranch. Here's a quotation from that article. Uh, In the article, he's asked, What do you think it is? Have you had any strange experiences on the ranch itself? I have no idea. Perhaps it's an intelligence from another reality or dimension. Perhaps it's some unknown natural phenomenon. I'm open to many possibilities. My personal beliefs here don't really matter. What does the data say? That's all that matters. Currently, we have evidence for anomalous injuries, footage of anomalous aerial phenomena, transient electromagnetic fields, and a whole array of other bizarre things. As for your second question, a shockingly high number of people who I consider normal have had UFO sightings on the property, and they do not broadcast it. I've had some very credible and highly respected people tell me their stories. 
Many of those individuals have been with others who all simultaneously saw an aerial anomaly. That is all I can say about that. Fugel has begun to be very open about what's going on at the ranch, including releasing a recording of a 12-hour live stream of the ranch on YouTube. And that's not the most exciting news, because there's also a new multi-part History Channel documentary series on the site, and we'll have links to both of those, both the live stream and the History Channel documentary series on Skinwalker Ranch, so you can check them out for yourself. Hi, this is John. I'm one of the, your big fans. I'm also a Patreon member. I just wanted to say congratulations on your upcoming 100th episode. Uh, just looking forward to more. I definitely enjoy listening to the, the episodes on the way to my commute to work. It's definitely been a blessing in my life. Just want to thank you guys and keep up the good work. Jimmy, episode 38, we covered the hunt for the Golden State Killer. What's new on that? In that episode, we reported on Joseph D'Angelo, the first accused serial killer to be caught using a public DNA database and identified through his relatives. According to the authorities, between 1974 and 1986, the former police officer terrorized, raped, and killed people in multiple communities as the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and finally the Golden State Killer. He was arrested in 2018, he's been in custody ever since, and there have been a few developments in his case. One is that his public defenders have moved to have a delayed trial schedule so that they can have more time with the extensive documents and evidence concerning his case. However, the judge has not been sympathetic to this plea because the crimes occurred 40 years ago, many of the victims and witnesses are elderly and could pass away without justice being done. Another development is that the prosecution has filed a motion to collect more of D'Angelo's DNA, and the lawyers have been squabbling about that, but I haven't been able to learn of a definitive ruling on that point. Finally, in March of this year, D'Angelo, who is 74 years old, offered to plead guilty to the charges against him in exchange for receiving a life sentence rather than going through a death penalty trial. His lawyers have been contacting victims and family members to try to drum up support for such a plea bargain, but at the time we're recording this, no plea deal has been reached. This is Father Paul Haverstock from Minnesota calling to thank you for your awesome podcast. Your Fatima episodes have helped me in conversations with parishioners. Basically, every episode you do does help me to relax and recharge while learning something new. And the intermittent fasting episode hopefully will help me. Thank you so much for your awesome work with this podcast. May God bless you and happy Easter. Jimmy, in episode 41, we first talked about the Navy UFOs and the ATIP program, and then we uh, covered it again in episode 70. Uh, what's new since episode 70? The Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, is the U.S. Navy's investigation into unidentified aerial phenomena, including UFOs. Since its existence was announced to the public by Luis Elizondo, who claims to have been the head of it and who also released three videos that Navy pilots took of UFOs, there's been a lot of controversy over this story. We've already done two full episodes on it, and we'll undoubtedly do more because the developments just keep coming. Here are a few developments for now. The Navy has said that releasing more UFO footage would, quote, gravely damage U.S. national security, so don't expect any more of it anytime soon. Also, the mysterious Navy inventor, 
that we've discussed, Salvatore Pais, who applied for several patents of a science fictional nature, has given an interview, at least apparently confirming that he is a real person and not a fiction created by the Defense Department, as some has have suspected, although if he is a fiction, they could easily fake an interview. The Pentagon has apparently given the task of communicating on the issues of unidentified aerial phenomena to a single woman, Susan Goff, meaning an individual woman. I don't know if she's married or not. <laughs> and individual services like the Navy, the Air Force, etc., apparently no longer have control over their own messaging. Everything has to go through her. Susan Goff has claimed that ATIP had nothing to do with UFOs, and it's cla she's claimed that Luis Elizondo was not the former head of the project, as he said, or that he even had anything to do with ATIP. At least he didn't do any work for it. However, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations looked into how Elizondo was able to release the three videos, and internal documents from their investigation do indicate both that ATIP investigates UFOs and that Elizondo worked there, contradicting Goff. Also, the Air Force investigation concluded that the videos Elizondo released apparently were never classified, perhaps due to a misclassification error on the part of the Defense Office of Prepublication and Security Review. So Elizondo didn't release any classified material. You might, though, wonder why the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations was investigating the actions of a man connected with a Navy program. Why didn't the Navy's own Naval Criminal Investigative Service, or NCIS, investigate this? That would be a good question. The answer might have to do with the fact that it's the Air Force, not the Navy, that has primary responsibility for America's airspace. That's led some investigators, like Tyler Rogaway of the War Zone, to wonder whether the Air Force has a parallel investigation to ATIP. So he contacted the Air Force, and initially they were very helpful, until a directive came down focusing all of the Pentagon's reporting on the issue to, wait for it, Susan Goff. Hmm. He and other investigators have become increasingly frustrated with Goff, who has been highly unresponsive to inquiries, either not getting back to people for long periods of time or offering up multiple excuses for why she hasn't been communicative. Rogaway recently and reluctantly published a piece on his interactions with her, which he describes as the worst experience he has ever had with a Defense Department spokesperson, and in which he frankly accuses her of engaging in some kind of ruse, perhaps due to orders she received from above. Meanwhile, investigator Tim McMillan of Popular Mechanics has received additional documents indicating that the Pentagon has been working with people like Bob Bigelow, to investigate unexplained phenomena, including at places like Skinwalker Ranch. And people are still exploring the possibility that the UFOs that the Navy pilots saw are actually explainable in conventional terms and might not be evidence of alien life. Needless to say, we'll have links to all of this, and we will be reporting on it more in the future. This is Chris Vandermeer. Uh, a huge fan. Uh, what I love most is the attention to details on all aspects of the podcast, from the chapter selections that I can pick in the podcast 
to the overall structure where you have the religious versus the reason perspectives. I just wanted to say that I'm a huge fan and keep up the great work. I'm a proud patron of your show. In episode 45, we discussed the Voynich Manuscript, and I'm sure there's more news on that mysterious document. Yeah, the the Voynich Manuscript is a mysterious book that was written on vellum that has been carbon dated to the first half of the 15th century, in other words, the 1400s. It's written in an unknown script and contains many weird drawings of plants, apparently being some kind of herbological medical textbook. There have been many theories about the origin of the book, and in the last couple of years, a new contender has been getting recognition. In 2018, a pair of plant specialists, Jules Janik and Arthur Tucker, released a book titled Unraveling the Voynich Codex, in which they proposed their theory. Then, in 2019, they released another book titled Flora of the Voynich Codex, in which they claim to identify all of the plants in the book. Now, theories about the Voynich manuscript come and go, but this one has gotten recognition in the scientific community. Just this year, earlier in 2020, the American Botanical Council gave the pair an award for the book identifying the plant, so they were impressed by it. According to a story published by Purdue University, Jules Janik, the James Troop Distinguished Professor of Horticulture, recently received the American Botanical Council James A. Duke Excellence in Botanical Literature Award for his 2019 book, Flora of the Voynich Codex, An Exploration of Aztec Plants. Janik shares the award with his co-author, the late Arthur Tucker, Emeritus Herbarium Director at Delaware State University. The Voynich Manuscript, a codex heavily illustrated with botanical illustrations that until recently was of ambiguous origin and language, and had proved undecipherable to scholars for over a century. In their 2018 book, Unraveling the Voynich Code, Janik and Tucker established that the manuscript dates from 16th century Mexico, based on their analysis of the botanical drawings and maps contained in the book. The document was previously thought to have been the product of 15th century European botanists. This hypothesis is furthered in The Flora of the Voynich Codex, published by Springer, in which the authors elaborate on the identifications linking the botanical illustrations to plants used in traditional herbal remedies by the Aztecs of southern Mexico in the 1500s. In the flora of the Voynich Codex, identification of the plants was extended to 166 phytomorphs, all but one indigenous to the New World. It reinforced our mantra that there was no way that a manuscript with a sunflower and an armadillo could be a 15th century European work, as both species are native to the Western Hemisphere, Janik said. The award is a final tribute to my dear friend and an indefatigable botanist. According to Kenneth Tang, editor for Springer, this is the first and only publication to fully identify all plant species from the original Voynich manuscript, a feat which significantly fortifies the assertions Janik and Tucker made in Unraveling the Voynich Codex. If the identifications of the plants made continues to hold up, we may be much closer to cracking the text of the manuscript itself. Janik and Tucker concluded that it was made in the mid-1500s by someone associated with the Franciscan Order's Colegio de Santa Cruz, or College of the Holy Cross, in Mexico City. The author of the Codex combined both Aztec and European ideas in the book, including ones from European astrology and the Kabbalah. 
We'll have uh, links to both of their books as well as the article on the award, and I'll be looking into this for a future episode. This is Charlie from Arizona, just calling to say I love the show. I can't believe it's been 100 episodes. I've listened to every single one. It reminds me of a mix of my favorite shows from TV when I was a kid, radio shows, and it keeps it all within the Catholic faith, so I really enjoy it. Keep up the good work, guys. Jimmy, in episode 53, we talked about a mystery that very few people had ever heard of, but really captivated everyone's imagination. The most mysterious ball of metal ever, the Bet Sphere. What's new with the Bet Sphere? So, as you say, the Bet Sphere is a very mysterious metal sphere. It was found in 1974 by members of the Betts family, which is why it has that name, on uh, St. George Island in Florida. Nobody is sure what the sphere was or why it displayed the unusual behaviors and properties it did. Uh, it was even studied by the famous UFO expert J. Allen Hynek. Since our episode on the sphere, a podcast devoted to it has been released. The podcast is called Oddball, which is kind of an appropriate title, <laughs> and it has five episodes, and it covers the story of the sphere, where it is today, and what the family has to say. Needless to say, we'll have a link to where you can listen to it yourself. This is John Scrivo. I just wanted to congratulate you guys on your 100th episode, and just thank you for the amazing content and the great storytelling that you do. As a teacher, I really love the way you introduce every mystery. They always make it so engaging. And as a teacher, I see that as really helpful for students as a way to present any topic where it could help motivate them to want to learn more about it because it's done in such an engaging way. So thank you so much and keep it up. Can't wait till episode number 200. In episode 67, we discussed the mysterious number stations. Uh, what's new with the number stations? So number stations were bizarre radio stations, primarily during the Cold War, that broadcast mysterious sequences of numbers and letters. They were widely believed to be used by spy agencies to communicate with agents in the field. The agents would have what are known as one-time pads, and they would use them to decipher the messages. Even though the number stations are much less common today, they still exist and could be used more in the future in the event of emergencies. A while ago, I came across a video looking at the question of what happened to most of the number stations, and we'll have a link to that. Also, one of the things we mentioned in the episode is that even a quantum computer, which could crack many other ciphers, cannot crack a message encrypted with a one-time pad. And I wanted to go on and follow up on why, because this is one of the things that the video goes into. A one-time pad, as we explained, is a pad of encryption values that you use one time to encipher a message then you tear off that page and destroy it so it's only used one time. It's a pad made of one-time encryption keys. The reason that a quantum computer can't crack a message enciphered with a one-time pad is that it would use a brute force approach that would spit out both the true decryption of the message and every other possible string of characters of the same or lesser length. For example... If I send a one-time pad message to someone saying the attack is, begins at 1 p.m., a quantum computer would spit out that message, the attack at begin, begins at 1 p.m., but it would also spit out the attack begins at 2 p.m., the attack begins at 3 p.m., the attack begins at 1 a.m., don't do anything, attack off, 
and send pepperoni pizza today, all of which are messages of the same or lesser length. So, in other words, a quantum computer would reveal the true message, but among an almost infinite number of false but equally possible messages. Hi, it's Tom and Jimmy. I'm Lindsay Sands. And I'm Caroline Knight. And we are the Catholics of Oz. And we wanted to congratulate you on 100 episodes of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World by talking about our top three episodes and sharing a fact with you. So my top three episodes were The Summerton Man, because we were in it, Doubt Love Pass, because I don't think I slept for a week after hearing it, and the episode on Mind Control Parasites. And my top three episodes were from episode 28, The Mystery of Egypt's Heretic Pharaoh Akhenaten, because I already love Akhenaten. Episode 22, Bob Lazar, Area 51. Was what he said about Area 51 true? Were his credentials real? I don't know. Episode 24, What on Earth Happened at Diet Love Pass? That one really got me thinking. And how about, Lindsay, did you have a favourite fact? Yeah, so I didn't realise that the uh, parasites and the flu could make you more sociable. So now every time I want to hang out with people, I have to check my temperature. <laughs> and my favourite fact is, you know those watches we had when we were little and they had the glowing numbers on them? I had no idea that they were radioactive. Guys, thank you so much for keeping us hooked with great topics and keep on exploring our mysterious world. In episode 73, along with our friends from the Catholics of Oz, uh, we discussed the Summerton Man. What's new with the Summerton Man? So uh, just as a refresher, because, you know, I'm trying to refresh people's memories on some of these things. The Summerton Man was a mysterious man who was discovered dead on the beach on Summerton Beach in South Australia. There was no obvious cause of death, and the authorities suspected he had been poisoned. Subsequent details of the case also suggested that he may have been a spy who either was killed or committed suicide, possibly after being ordered to do so. There are even clues that Summerton Mann may have been using a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam as a one-time pad to encrypt or decrypt messages. The pathologist who examined his body was Dr. J.B. Cleland, and for years it's been believed that the notes he took on his examination of the body were lost, keeping investigators from being able to examine them. But recently, his notes were rediscovered, and they've been scanned and put online. So we'll have a link to those so that you can read the notes for yourself and see what new clues they may contain. My name is Michael McFall from Pearland, Texas. I love this podcast. You guys are by far my favorite podcasters. I did not get started into listening to podcasts until the summer of 2019, but since then, I've listened to every episode multiple times, and I have learned so much about such diverse and fascinating topics. This podcast is a big part of my continuous learning program. The show that has had the biggest impact on me personally was episode 21, The Mysteries of Weight Loss. Since listening to that episode and putting intermittent fasting in place, I have lost 35 pounds. I'm back to my weight of 15 years ago. I feel so much healthier, and adding fasting to my prayer life has made a big difference in my Catholic spiritual journey. We're getting up to some more recent episodes here. In uh, episode 83, we talked about dark matter and dark energy, and I'm guessing there's some updates on that as well. 
Yeah. So just as a refresher, dark matter is thought to be an invisible, intangible substance that hold galaxies, holds galaxies together and allows them to spin faster than they otherwise would. Dark energy, on the other hand, is thought to be an invisible energy pushing the universe apart faster and faster. In our episode, we covered multiple theories about dark matter and dark energy, including the possibilities that they don't even exist and we just need to tweak the laws of physics. Since the episode, there have been developments on both things. First, regarding dark matter, a new candidate has been proposed. To understand this new candidate, you need to understand something about how the nucleons or the particles in the nucleus of an atom work. So these are protons and neutrons. And each proton and each neutron is made up of three even smaller particles called quarks. But it's possible for quarks to get together in other groupings, some of which form six quarks, six quark sets known as hexaquarks. A new paper proposes that a kind of particle called a D star hexaquark may be the explanation for dark matter. And we got experimental evidence that this particle exists back in 2014. So we may have already discovered dark matter. The next step for supporters of this idea is to try to show that these hexaquarks are the explanation for dark matter, and they already have a lead on experiments that they could use to test that hypothesis. On the dark energy front, even though the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to a team that supposedly proved the existence of dark energy using data from observing supernovas, a new analysis suggests that their proof was flawed and that the Nobel Prize winners didn't actually show that the universe is expanding faster and faster. We'll have links to a series of easy-to-understand videos explaining the resulting controversy. Hi, Jenny and Don. It's Brooke Kennel. Um, I just wanted to say what an amazing show you guys have and how much I've enjoyed it. I've been listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World for several years now. It's always one of the best things about Friday. The past couple of years uh, of my life have been fairly turbulent, so it's really nice to have a consistently good thing every single week in Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. And I just wanted to let you guys know what a, a wonderful an enjoyable show you guys have. I look forward to many more years of Mysterious World. Episode 87 covered the biblical uh, creatures, people, <laughs> known as the Nephilim. So what's new with the Nephilim? So in our episode on the Nephilim, we considered the hypothesis, which is actually well supported in ancient Jewish literature, that the Nephilim were the offspring of fallen angels and human women. I mentioned that some have dismissed this idea on the grounds that angels don't have physical bodies, but I didn't find this persuasive because angels might be able to manipulate matter in such a way as to produce the needed human germ cells, or they could at least procure them from human men. More recently, I've come across someone else who takes that same position, St. Thomas Aquinas. Like many in church history, he holds that angels are capable of assuming what he calls aerial bodies, meaning temporary bodies that dissolve when the angels are done with them, although he doesn't think that they're capable of reproduction using aerial bodies. His own view is that the Nephilim were children whose fathers were of the righteous line of Seth and whose mothers came from the wicked line of Cain. 
that's a view that I don't find particularly likely in light of the biblical evidence. You can listen to our episode on why. But Aquinas agrees that fallen angels can sometimes have relations with humans. He writes, As Augustine says in The City of God, Book 15, Many persons affirm that they have had the experience, or have heard from such as have experienced it, that the satyrs and fauns, whom the common folk call incubi, have often presented themselves before women, and have sought and procured intercourse with them. Hence, it is folly to deny it. Aquinas goes on to acknowledge the possibility of them fathering children using germ cells that they've procured from human men. Still, if some are occasionally begotten from demons, it is not from the seed of such demons, nor from their assumed bodies, but from the seed of men taken for the purpose, as when the demon assumes first the form of a woman, and afterwards of a man, just as they take the seed of other things for other generating purposes, as Augustine says in On the Trinity, Book 2, so that the person born is not the child of a demon, but of a man. So, even though his personal theory is that the Nephilim were the children of men from the line of were children of men from the line of Seth, he acknowledges the possibility of fallen angels fathering children using stolen human germ cells. The resulting child would be a hundred percent human, not an angel-human hybrid. Though Aquinas doesn't go into the question of whether the demons could manipulate the human DNA in the germ cells, because, of course, back in the 1200s, they didn't know about DNA. This is Devin in Ohio. Just wanted to say thanks for a terrific podcast. Even though I'm a Protestant, I have enjoyed listening to Catholic radio for the past several years and always glad to hear Jimmy's voice on Catholic Answers Live, I'm impressed by his knowledge of scripture and pretty much any subject. So when I heard him talking about this particular podcast, I thought that would be right up my alley and terrific, great fun to listen to. Jimmy answers all the questions with that generosity of spirit that he shows in Catholic Answers Live. So it's, you know, never comes across as a know-it-all, even though he seems to know it all. Really appreciate that. Happy to be a new patron and supporting this podcast. So keep up the good work and hope to be around to listen to episode number 200. And Jimmy, on April 1st, we released an episode called uh, The Government Acid Conspiracy, episode number 91. What's new with that? So we in that episode, we talked about a condition called Argyria, where your skin turns permanently blue. It's caused, among other things, by drinking too much colloidal silver in an effort to boost your immune system against bacteria. One of the things we mentioned is that Argyria doesn't turn your skin the fun electric blue that you'd imagine. Instead, it turns it what's been called a ghastly zombie smurf grayish blue. Well, recently, I ran across a man whose skin is a fun color of blue, but not because of Argyria. Instead, it's because he's been steadily tattooing his skin. He says that he's very happy with the results, and he gets lots of curious, friendly questions about it. So we'll have a link to a story about him from the New York Post so that you can see for yourself what a person who is a fun shade of blue looks like. Also, one of the things I pointed out in this episode is that while some people drink colloidal silver to help boost their immune system against bacteria, it isn't thought to work against viruses. There are, though, metals that do have antiviral properties, and they include zinc and copper. We'll have a link to an article on the antiviral properties of copper, and it asks, you know, why isn't this used everywhere in public places to help cut down on things like the current coronavirus pandemic? 
also, I've recently discovered that colloidal copper is commercially available, as is colloidal zinc, as a nutritional supplement. Also, from what I've been able to find out, if you drink colloidal copper, you don't run the risk of turning a funny color. I've even tried it myself, so far with no ill effects. So we'll also have a link to where you can get colloidal copper on Amazon in case you want to try it. Just be sure to follow the directions and don't go crazy. This does not constitute medical advice. (laughs) This is not medical (laughs) advice, yes. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. Every Friday when I tune into the show, I'm reminded of Hamlet's words to Horatio that there were more things in heaven and earth than were dreamt of in his philosophy. And also G.K. Chesterton's words that the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. There's a lot of wisdom in both of these quotations because wonder keeps us humble and also begets gratitude. This show is called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, but it is marvelous and wondrous as well as mysterious. I look forward to listening to new episodes each week because the reminders that they give me of the many wonders of God's creation and for that awe and gratitude that these wonders inspire. I'm a proud patron supporter of the show and recommend it to everyone that I meet. Keep up the excellent work. Congratulations on 100 mysterious and wonderful episodes, and I'm looking forward to the next 100. God bless. Uh, Very recently, Jimmy, we talked about uh, in episode 96 about uh, David Koresh. What's new with David Koresh? In the mysterious, it's not about him per se, but in the mysterious feedback segment of that episode, we had a story about some footage from the International Space Station that clearly showed a mysterious object flying by the station. Unlike a lot of purported UFO footage from satellites and space stations, it didn't just show a tiny blip of light. It showed what was clearly a physical object, but the initial press accounts couldn't identify what it was. It even looked like it zoomed up into a higher orbit and the ISS cameras zoomed in on it as it did so. Well, no sooner did our episode release than we got feedback from Arthur B. by email. He sent a link to a YouTube video where a NASA astronaut was being interviewed and he explained what it was. Turns out it was a piece of outdated Japanese communications equipment that was being jettisoned so it would deorbit and burn up. This was also publicly known, but not by the reporters who wrote the press accounts. The reason it appears to zoom upwards has to do with the way that orbital mechanics work. And the reason that the ISS cameras zoomed in on it was because they were keeping track of it to make sure that it went away from the space station as it was supposed to. So even though it was a physical object, it was just a piece of space junk. And thanks very much to Arthur B. for sending the link. And now I get to enjoy having Devo's song Space Junk playing in my head for a while. Okay, so episode 96 takes us up to just four episodes ago. We hope that you've enjoyed these updates on our first 100 episodes, and we look forward to doing this again in the future, right, Jimmy? Yeah, we'll be doing this again for sure for episode number 200 for our 200th episode celebration. We'll also, of course, continue to update you as we go along, but we'll have another big update episode then. Hey, Jimmy and Dom, love your show. I've been on fans since you did that episode about Hitler and his religion. I think it's really fascinating the topics you always bring up. I don't think you're ever going to run out of ideas. Thanks for the show, and here's to... Maybe more than 100 more. And the plans are to have more than 100 more episodes. We have hundreds of ideas on the (laughs) list, and we don't anticipate running out anytime soon. 
So, Jimmy, you mentioned that uh, there are plenty of res- further resources for people to check out from all of these updates. Uh, can you t- tell us about them? Yeah. Uh, so for episode one, we'll have links to Aquinas on the damned appearing to people. Uh, we'll have a link to Benedict the 14th Heroic Virtue, Volume 3, where he talks about the same subject. We'll have a link to the passage from Sirach about Samuel's ghost. For episode three, we'll have Astonishing Legends seven-part Patterson-Gimlin film series uh, analysis. For episode four, we'll have the Drives article on the new Area 51 photos, as well as photos of other nearby related sites. On the pyramids, we'll have a link to an article showing the chamber beneath the backside of the Sphinx. Also, that documentary about the robot team and the Queen's Chamber shaft, as well as if if you look in the description of that video, you'll also find links to the raw footage of the expedition. We'll have information on Howard Weiss, uh, a video on the authenticity of the Weiss markings, including mention of the fact that even fringe Egyptologists have now come around on those. We'll have an article and video on the current Scan Pyramids project and the Big Void, as well as a series of short little videos exploring the possibility of hidden chambers below the pyramid. For episode 22 on Bob Lazar, we'll have a story on the FBI raid on Lazar's business, as well as a link to his autobiography called Dreamland. For episode 23 on astrology, we'll have links to both the articles, the scientific studies we looked at that dealt with birth weight, as well as a chart matching up the star signs to the different months of the year. On Dyatlov Pass, we'll have the article on the Russians opening their new investigation, as well as Ruptly.tv's online documentary. For Jimmy Hoffa, we'll have info on the movie, The Irishman, as well as that video I mentioned on other theories of what happened to him. For Skinwalker Ranch, we'll have that profile of the new owner, as well as the 12-hour live stream and the History Channel TV series. On the Golden State Killer, we'll have links to the articles tussling over his DNA, as well as his offer, Joseph D'Angelo's offer, to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. On the ATIP Navy UFO studies, we will have a number of links. We'll have the one where they say releasing more footage will gravely damage national security. We'll have the interview with Salvatore Pais. We'll have a series of stories on Air Force investigations and leaked documents and the frustrations of dealing with spokeswoman Susan Goff and just a, a quite a number of other things. Some we didn't even mention. So check those out. On the Voynich Manuscripts, we'll have a link to both of the two books that claim to have cracked the basic nature of the code and identified all the plants, the latter of which won an award from a botanical society, as well as the Purdue story on the award. For the Bet Sphere, we'll have a link to the Oddball podcast. On Number Stations, we'll have the video I mentioned on what happened to them. On Summerton Man, we'll have the newly found pathologist notes. On Dark Matter and Dark Energy, we'll have that article on hexaquarks as a dark matter candidate, as well as a series of videos explaining why dark energy might not exist. For the Nephilim, we'll have a a link to Aquinas talking about uh, fallen angels fathering children. For the government acid conspiracy, we'll have links to colloidal copper, antiviral properties of copper, and the man who tattooed his entire body a fun shade of blue. Finally, for the David Koresh episode, we'll have that link that Arthur B. sent to an astronaut explaining what the ISS space junk was, 
And finally, we'll have a link to the movie Plan 9 from Outer Space, which provides the opening and closing of this episode. So, Jimmy, we want to conclude this episode by giving a very special patron thanks. Thank you, everybody, for celebrating our first 100 episodes with us, and thank you for making them possible. It's because of all of our patrons that we're able to bring you Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, as well as all of the other StarQuest programs. So thanks to each and every one of you. Without your support, we could not keep making these programs. Everything hinges on you, and we still need to get more patrons so that the network can reach the break-even point and have an assured future. If we don't reach that point, uh, we don't know what will happen with the network, and we might even have to shut down. So your support is crucial. Please go to sqpn.com slash give and become one of our patrons on Patreon. Yes, with your help, we'll be able to continue making Jimmy Eakin's Mysterious World for years into the future and bring you hundreds of new mysteries, as well as more of these 100th episode updates. Everything depends on you, so please let us hear from you today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. So uh, we want to end with a request to send us your feedback. What are your theories about the mysteries that we've discussed today and updated? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's episode 101 going to be about? Well, next week is a fifth Friday, so we'll be having our usual fifth Friday weird questions. And then the week after that, episode 102, we'll be looking at the psychic phenomenon known as remote viewing. Excellent. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion, as we mentioned, on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce this podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world for 100 episodes. Thanks, Dom, and here's to 100 more. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. My friend, you have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? Perhaps on your way home. Someone will pass you in the dark, and you will never know it, for they will be from outer space. Many scientists believe that another world is watching us this moment. We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the airplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh at outer space. God help us in the future.